You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'm your balladeer, Nathaniel Lloyd, and I'd love for you all to sing along if you know this one. In this episode, we remain in England for another tale of unfortunate youth that may or may not be pure fiction. If you recall, in my episode on the Green Children of Woolpit, I mentioned that a theory has arisen locally in Suffolk that the lost youth of St. Martin's Land were actually one and the same with the well-known Babes in the Wood, a pair of children who, according to tradition, had been betrayed to their deaths by their ruthless uncle. Now, I made short work of this theory, as the tradition tells us the Babes in the Wood died and did so far northward of Woolpit in the woods of Norfolk. And the suggestion that they had been turned green by arsenic poisoning which was never a part of the traditional tale of the Babes in the Wood, also seems to have confused the symptoms of arsenic poisoning generally with the medium by which arsenic poisoning often occurred in the 19th century, green dye in clothing. Yet as we look further into the story of the Babes in the Wood, we see that there remains some mystery there to untangle. Indeed, the tradition is very much like that of the green children, only without the fantastical elements implying otherworldly visitation. The story originated as a ballad, or a poem, kept alive through transmission as a popular song, and this one in particular became a popular nursery rhyme as well. Indeed, it has been claimed that for many years, every child in England knew the poem by heart. The mystery arises from the fact that ballads frequently tell the stories of real although perhaps embellished, people and events. So the question then becomes, were the babes in the wood real? Or is the story merely a fiction that has passed into folklore? If you ask villagers in Watton and Griston, which can be found on either side of Wayland Wood, where the children are supposed to have died, many will tell you it's a true story and point to their village signs, which offer depictions of the children at the sword point of their abductor and lost and dying in the forest, respectively. If real, then who were these children whose heinous murder has been immortalized in storybooks? And who immortalized them in verse? Thank you for joining me for this blind spot, Babes in the Wailing Wood.
The ballad known as The Babes in the Wood tells the tale of a famous and wealthy gentleman of Norfolk who, along with his wife, became gravely ill. On their deathbeds, they promised a hefty inheritance to the beautiful son and daughter they were leaving behind to be awarded once they had reached a certain age. In the meantime, they charged the children's uncle to keep them. You are the man must bring my babes to wealth or misery, quoth the mother with a warning. Quote, if you do keep them carefully, then God you will reward. If otherwise you seem to deal, God will your deeds regard, end quote. And in answer, the uncle swore, quote, God never prosper me nor mine, nor aught else that I have, if I do wrong your children dear, when you are laid in grave, end quote. Despite these promises, after a year and a day, he schemed to take the children's inheritance, which would be his if anything were to befall the children before they came of age. To this end, he engaged two ruffians to take the children into the woods and slay them. The children went willingly, for their uncle had told them and all the world that he was sending them to be brought up by a friend in London. So off into the woods the children rode on horseback, laughing and making merry, accompanied by their would-be murderers. Listening to their innocent merriment along the way, one of the ruffians relented, finding that he could not do the dark deed. The other, however, was determined to carry out his foul task, and the two criminals fought there in the woods over whether or not to fulfill their evil commission. The ruffian whose heart had softened toward the children triumphed in the struggle, and he killed the other there in the woods in front of the children. This repentant killer then led the frightened children on, assuring them he meant them no harm, and they traveled farther into the woods for miles until the children grew hungry. The ruffian told the children to wait there for him and that he would bring them back bread, but the children wandered, eating berries and becoming lost. As night came on, they held each other and wept and died of exposure. The babes in the wood received no burial, the ballad tells us, except for that of some red-breasted robins that kindly covered them with leaves. And true to the warning given by the children's mother, God did indeed seem to regard the deeds of the uncle and dealt with him accordingly. Haunted by fiends and his guilty conscience, he lost everything, his cattle, his lands, his own children, and he died in prison for debt. The truth of his wicked dealings eventually came out when the surviving ruffian, standing accused of a robbery, ended up confessing the entire affair. The uncle, therefore, got what he deserved, and one might be tempted to say the ballad is nothing more than a moral tale, an instructive nursery rhyme, perhaps one of Mother Goose's, were it not for the insistence among many in Norfolk that the story is true. It is supposed by many that Griston Hall, a grand Tudor farmhouse, was the home of the story's wicked uncle. And between Griston and Watton lies Wayland Wood, where locals say the abandoned children died. Local superstition says to avoid those woods at dusk, for even today 
as the night falls, you can hear the cries of children there. For this reason, they call it Wailing Wood. In order to ascertain whether there is any truth to the story, first we must trace it to its origins. We know that Thomas Percy, a clergyman of humble origins, was the first to popularize a version of the ballad in his 1764 Reliques of Ancient English Poetry. Much of the source material for this volume, according to Percy, had been rescued from an old manuscript full of ballads that he had taken off the hands of a housemaid just as she had been about to start a fire with it. Percy's version of the ballad bore the much clunkier but informative title, quote, The Children in the Wood, being a true relation of the inhuman murder of two children of a deceased gentleman of Norfolk, England, whom he left to the care of his brother. But this wicked uncle, in order to get the children's estate, contrived to have them destroyed by two ruffians whom he hired for that purpose, with an heavy account of the judgments of God which befell him for this inhuman deed, and of the untimely end of the two bloody ruffians, to which is added a word of advice to executors." End quote. With a title like that, why read the poem? The ballad became immortalized when the famous R. Caldicott illustrated it as a picture book in 1879 under the far more memorable title, The Babes in the Wood. But who was the actual author of the ballad? As we take a brief break from the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that supporters of my Patreon get exclusive access to an ad-free stream of the show. So if you want to get on with each episode without interruption, head on over and pledge a monthly donation of as little as $1 to get the ad-free RSS feed, which can be pasted into most podcast apps. All patrons also get teasers in their feeds during off weeks, and patrons at higher levels get early access to all episodes, among other perks. I'd love to be able to offer the show with no ads, but in order to build a future for the show, that means freeing up my time to concentrate more on the podcast, which means seeking patronage and advertising. I appreciate all of you listening and supporting the show by rating, reviewing, spreading the word, and pledging your support. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Percy traced the ballad to a 1601 play by Robert Yarrington, suggesting that the balladeer adapted Yarrington's story for the poem. Joseph Ritson, thereafter, discovered a 1595 entry in the ledgers of a stationer named Thomas Millington, indicating the earlier publication of a ballad with a title that sounds strikingly familiar. Quote, The Norfolk Gent, His Will and Testament and how he committed the keeping of his children to his own brother, who dealt most wickedly with them, and how God plagued him for it." End quote. Thereafter, H.B. Wheatley further argued Yarrington's play may not have been printed until years after it had first been written and or performed, which would mean the ballad printed by Millington still may have been an adaptation of it. But regardless, we are no closer to the name of the balladeer, whether he or she was inspired by a play or the other way around. And to muddy the waters further, there is the distinct possibility that the ballad had descended from a much earlier date via oral tradition. One theory is that the ballad was a thinly veiled version of the rumor that Richard III had murdered his nephews in the Tower of London after seizing power in order to ensure his claim to the throne. This, of course, is a historical mystery of great scope and depth that deserves its own treatment at length. But in outline, the story of the princes in the tower is as follows. After King Edward IV's death in 1483, his 12-year-old son was proclaimed King Edward V, but the boy's uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, intercepted the boy on his way to London, claiming there was a conspiracy to control the young king. In London, Richard put the boy king in the royal apartments in the tower, along with his nine-year-old brother, insisting they stay isolated for their own safety. Less than two weeks later, Richard declared them both illegitimate and had himself crowned King Richard III, the princes were seen that summer playing in the Tower Garden, but were never seen again. And it is popularly held that Richard had them murdered. Some have argued that Richard was slandered, that Tudor propaganda spread after Henry VII seized power from Richard is responsible for these appalling rumors and the villainous image of Richard we have inherited. And there is much to support this notion since another ballad that appears to be of the same era as the Babes in the Wood is a blatant piece of Tudor propaganda about the Battle of Bosworth Field, at which Henry defeated Richard. 
However, where the Battle of Bosworth Field is specific in naming its characters, the Babes in the Wood is not. And where it is specific, the details fail to match. Richard III was not a man of Norfolk, and his nephews were two boys who did not die of exposure in the woods, as far as we know, more likely in a locked room. The differences when listed are many. The children's ages, whether their mothers had died before their uncle's betrayal, where they had been kept before their murder, whether their murderers had confessed, etc. If the babes in the wood were meant to correspond with the princes in the tower and to further besmirch the reputation of the deposed Richard, why change the story so dramatically that it is unrecognizable? Indeed, as propaganda, it would seem to be ineffective. Some have suggested that the rumor of the prince's murder by Richard may have itself evolved to conform with the folktale that can be discerned in the Babes in the Wood ballad. Likewise, the Babes in the Wood may have evolved from a far older folk tradition. Indeed, folklorist Alfred Nutt in 1891 argued that the Babes in the Wood theme appears to have been commonplace. In Wales, in the 12th century, a tale told of a King Caradoc, slain by his brother, who then dispatches his niece and nephew into the woods to be murdered by a huntsman who ends up taking pity on them and hiding them. And even earlier, in the 10th century, an Irish tradition told of a king of Ulster who wed the High King's daughter, but as she only gave him a daughter, he remarried to a woman from the fairy realm named Etain. A true wicked stepmother, Etain wished the girl to be killed. Servants were tasked with abandoning the girl in a pit, but as they put her there, the girl laughed lovingly at them as though it were a game, and they found themselves unable to do the deed. So they gave her to cowherds to be raised, and she grew to be a girl of famous beauty who drew the eye of the king. One can see elements of Snow White in these stories, with the wicked stepmother and a huntsman who takes pity on his prey, and talk of the girl's famous beauty, and the mention of a child abandoned in a pit even calls up the green children again. The similarities here with the babes in the wood are prominent. In the older Irish tradition, we have a child taken by servants of a family member to be left exposed to the elements. But those tasked with the murder relent because of the child's sweet innocence. Then the Welsh tale, hundreds of years later, is nearly identical to the babes in the wood with the evil uncle conspiring to murder a nephew and a niece. If this does represent the transmission of the same folk tradition through the ages, one can clearly see the evolution of this folktale. But there remains the stubborn insistence of locals at Watton and Griston that this all really happened. If this were nothing but a fairy tale passed through the ages, how did it become associated with a, quote, gentleman of Norfolk, end quote? And why are people even today certain that the evil uncle used to live at Griston Hall? The answer may lie in good old-fashioned historical documentation. Some sources claim that the family from the ballad was the de Grays of Merton, who once owned Griston Hall, among many other properties. 
As the story goes, their Tudor farmhouse even used to have a mantelpiece carved with a depiction of scenes from the ballad. Records exist showing that the de Grays did indeed hold Griston Hall, and their story begins to look a lot like the babes in the wood when the family's lands pass into the ownership of the young Thomas de Grey, orphaned at seven years old. Thereafter, when in 1566, at 11 years old, he died at his stepmother's house, the manor and all other properties passed to his uncle, Robert. Perhaps, as some say, there were rumors that Robert, maybe colluding with the stepmother, had Thomas killed to take the land. Certainly, Robert thereafter struggled with debt and imprisonment, like the uncle of the ballad, although his troubles were due to various claims on his estate and because he was an unrepentant Roman Catholic. And he died in 1601, just when Yarrington's play was being published. So the broad strokes of the story are there. But again, there are many differences. There is only one child here, and he did not die in the woods, so far as can be surmised. Also, we have here the possibility of an evil stepmother, as well as a wicked uncle. But perhaps the balladeer found this too complicated to set down in verse. So what, after all, is true? Doesn't that always seem to be our question at the end of things? And as we have found before, stories we have received from the benighted past are frequently a snarl of true facts intertwined with folklore and falsehoods. Such may be the case here as well. Perhaps the saga of the de Grey family, circulated by rumor-mongering, began to take on aspects of an ancient oral tradition about a child betrayed and left exposed in the wilderness. And perhaps when the unknown balladeer composed the song, he saw in it material to rival the ever-popular story of the princes in the tower and their evil uncle, Richard III, which Shakespeare had recently immortalized in his tragedy. One certainty is that the folktale continues to evolve. In 1879, it is said lightning struck a large oak in Wayland Wood, and thereafter, this became recognized as the spot where the children, or child, had died. And on the Watton Village sign, you see the babes reclining beneath just such an iconic oak. But was this part of the folklore before the lightning struck, or just a dramatic addition to the tradition? Thus we see that old stories like these can be based in truth, but then corrupted through oral tradition to incorporate folklore. This makes our history a tangle of different threads, exceedingly hard to pull apart, and the more we tug at one piece of it, the more it tightens into an impossible knot. Thank you for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. Music for the show is provided by film composer Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com to get compositions for your own projects. As always, a tremendous thanks to my partner patrons on Patreon, Michael, Marina, Lori, and Diane. You are the nursery rhyme that inspired me as a child. 
Find me on Patreon to support the show and get some perks, such as access to ad-free episodes. Also, visit the website to browse the show's merch on Redbubble, check out the episode reading list, and click through to Amazon to buy my novel about the intersection of anti-Masonry and the beginning of Mormonism in early 19th century New York. If you buy and read the novel, give me a review on Amazon. And if you're able to, rate and review this show on whatever app you use, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, because that can really help people discover the show. Until next time, remember, when you're reading a surprisingly dark picture book to your child, maybe, just maybe, it's all true. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.